Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Deepa Falloyan, a writer and senior editor at Vice, who's also the author of the new book, Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa. The book, which aims to push back against stereotypes of the African continent, was released in North America in September 2022 and has already received tremendous praise for its research, analysis, and personal insights. I'm grateful to speak with Deepo about the book, what he learned in writing it, and what he wants readers to take away from it. Deepo, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Uh, it's great to be here. A key thesis of the book is that Africa is a complex and diverse continent and shouldn't be interpreted, as it too often is, as a homogeneous monolith. You write that Africa has been treated more as an idea than a place. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, if you ask most people to close their eyes and picture Africa, unfortunately, only sort of two images come to mind, and that's poverty or safari, and very little else in between. Um, people see Africa and they see what they've been taught and conditioned to see, um, which is a place of pain and suffering um, where the only joy that comes is, you know, animals wandering around in our backyards. Um, and that is a sort of a myth that's been pushed now for decades and decades. Um, it's been passed down um, largely since colonialism, and uh, it's one that has been maintained um, right up until today. And it's, it's so frustrating for so many people across the region, um, because when I think about Africa, I think about diversity. Um, we're talking about a region of 54 countries, 1.4 billion people in over 2,000 languages. I mean, that's as rich as you get. When I think about, you know, my family's home, hometown of Lagos, you know, that is a, a city of, you know, over 15 million people. Um, again, you know, Nigeria as a whole, there you, you're talking about kind of over 200 languages. Um, you know, Lagos itself isn't one thing. Um, it's a multitude of things, let alone this entire continent. Um, and so, you know, for me and for so many people across the region who have grown up frustrated with this, this stereotypes and this myth being pushed, um, it feels like, you know, now is the perfect time to, to bring an end to it. Your story starts in 1884. Why? What's its significance? Yeah, I mean, uh, so it starts with the Berlin Conference in 1884, which is arguably the most important singular event that's that's happened to what I refer to the book as modern Africa. And I'll, I'll get onto that in a second. But um, in 1884, the colonial powers of the day, 14 of them, uh, including uh, Great Britain, France, Belgium, um, 
the Netherlands uh, and the US met in Berlin to decide how they were going to uh, conquer Africa and how they were going to carve it up. Uh, they'd sent explorers into the region who'd come back and told them about all the wonderful natural resources and the people there. Um, and so they all decided that they wanted a piece of that for themselves by force. Uh, they weren't so concerned by the livelihoods of the people who were actually there. What they wanted to do was they wanted, or what they feared, in fact, was that uh, if they all simply just rushed into the region, that they would fight amongst themselves uh, for pieces of someone else's land. Um, and that might lead to wars between the colonial powers. And so instead, they said, look, let's meet uh, and let's hash it all out. Um, and one of the challenges that they faced, um, as many people can imagine, is that it's very much illegal uh, to conquer someone else's land by force. You know, it's it's illegal today. It's illegal then. It was illegal then. Um, and so they decided that they would come up with a justification for it and they would create a myth. And that myth was that Africans were uncivilized and that they were unable to look after themselves and they needed what the colonial powers could bring them, which was what they called the three C's, which was Christianity, commerce, and civilization. Um, now, of course, this was a complete myth. None of this was true. Uh, the continent was full of uh, communities and societies that were as technologically and culturally advanced as anywhere else in the world. We we know this um, because there's, you know, obviously great documentation um, around the uh around the communities that existed back then. Um, but the colonial powers knew that what they wanted to do was illegal. And so they came up with this myth um, and a myth that's been passed down ever since. And so after that conference, they all set out into the region and they started carving out pieces of land for themselves. And as they did started carving out these uh, pieces of land, they created countries out of nowhere. Um, and those countries are the countries that we now know um, make up uh, modern Africa. So the, the phrase sort of modern Africa that I use references 1884 until now, um, the creation of these of, of these nations against the will of the people on the ground. You write that as part of this history, that the countries were, quote, built to fail. What do you mean? And what have been the consequences of what the book calls artificial borders? Yeah, so these nations were not built for uh, the purpose of the people on the ground. They were built to make it as easy as possible for the colonialists to extract as much natural resources as possible. Um, and one of the ways that they did that, and especially the British did that, was they created these uh, comically large nations. Um, within them, you had hundreds and hundreds of different ethnic groups, different languages, people who didn't worship the same gods. And the aim was to make it hard for these uh, the inhabitants of these invented nations to come together to fight off uh, the colonial power. Um, and it created and sown in this sort of chaos and division. And this dividing rule, often you'd get uh, the colonial powers uh, bribing particularly unscrupulous locals um, and turning them against other ethnic groups to create these ethnic tensions that made it hard for these nations to find a common bond and common understanding so that the colonialists can spend as much time as possible extracting the natural resources from this land. Um, and that division was just devastating for the region. It created this swirling instability and, and misunderstandings and, and, and challenges that, that many of these countries face until today. And as part of that process, 
um, in creating these artificial countries, you had the creation of these artificial borders. Um, many of the colonial powers and the explorers that they sent in did not put in much work in actually trying to understand the terrain that they were actually um actually stealing and so what they did was they sort of put down a few markers and say oh well let's just say the border runs from here uh longitudinal north in another sort of 50 miles and we'll end there and we'll call the french and say is it okay if we stop around there and you know what that eventually created were uh straight line borders across the region you know if you look at a map of africa uh you'll notice that so many borders in fact 30 percent of all borders are just straight lines um and a straight line border what that does is that it tears communities in half about 10 percent of all ethnic groups were were split up uh in between countries um it 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 makes it hard for people to to fully engage with the nation that they had uh that they had been forced to inherit um, and it creates, it created this sort of instability between countries. Some borders don't, you know, literally exist in, in, you know, with lines. Some were created using, uh, sort of river bends and, um, and, and, and natural resources that change direction and which literally changed the shape of countries from time to time. Um, no one really considered such things as, you know, which, ethnic groups had a history of going to war with other ethnic groups they didn't consider you know as i said earlier who spoke the same languages you know all they cared about was uh trying to extract as much uh from these lands as possible um and that created um this swirling tension that you know many african countries have have been struggling with up until today although the post-colonial era was at times of violence and unstable you observe that today 90 percent of african countries have adopted forms of democracy. Deepo, do you want to reflect a bit on that process? How has democracy come to take shape on the continent? And what, if any, lessons are there for other parts of the world? Yeah, it's it's, it's a really, really good question. Um, eventually, independence did come. And so in those early days after independence, in the, in the early 1960s, these countries had to reckon with what they had inherited by force um and this was the chaos that that we spoke about earlier and and the you know the tensions between ethnic groups and these were countries that had been um you know recently invented there was no sense of nationalism and patriotism there were no real national traditions you had all these smaller ethnic groups with their own histories and traditions um and you know a reminder that this is incredibly recent history you know uh, my parents are older than nigeria itself um, and so you have a situation in which these uh, new leaders had to find some way of molding all these different traditions into one uh, political system, maybe mul multiple political systems. And it was it, initially it was it was tough work. You know, it was hard to do. There had been this uh, this forced tension between ethnic groups for decades and decades before. And in those early days, you had these you had these uh, civil wars that had ethnic groups kind of fighting and tussling for power over these large nations with uh, incredible natural resources um you had uh, one dynamic that was you know tricky and sensitive in those early days was also um that a lot of the independence heroes of the day these were often military men who fought for independence were given the first opportunities as you can understand um to run these nations and, and many of these men uh were certainly better suited to the battlefield than they were to politics um and so you, you had to go through these sort of early growing pains but you know with time 
uh, as, as I sort of, as you pointed out, you know, the vast majority of countries have have gotten through those early days, have found some sense of common understanding, have looked at their traditions, and have said, you know, we need to look towards the future now. An incredibly short period of time. Um, let's look. Let's look towards the future, and let's uh, try and and establish some sense of uh, common understanding amongst ourselves. Let's create new traditions. Let's lean into a common language. Um, let's lean into these sort of common identities, and 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 it's and it's worked in a, in a very short period of time. And I think when, for me, you know, when people understand that history and they understand the context of what these countries inherited against their will, and the work that they've had to do to turn what was an incredibly uh, painful birth um, into, uh, you know, a, a more far more stable situation. Now you start to see these countries not as failures and not as the myth of uncivilized countries because you know one irony was that after the end of the colonial powers were eventually kicked out during independence while a lot of that early chaos was happening many of those colonial powers were like oh well you see they needed us all along you know without acknowledging that they had created the chaos in the first place um and that the work that's been done I think so many other countries who, uh, let's say, have had a lot longer um, to come to better understandings around democracy and and accepting the will of the people um, can certainly learn from the intense work that African countries have done in just 60 years to get to the point where, you know, many African countries can certainly offer advice towards uh, many Western countries on how to respect the rule of law. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You criticize what you call the, quote, white savior complex. In your view, Deepo, have the various efforts from celebrity songs to more conventional human and humanitarian aid efforts helped or hindered Africa's development? Yeah, so earlier we talked about the myth that was created in 1884 by the Berlin Conference. And obviously that myth was created in order to uh, colonize the entire region. Um, and so what you eventually got in the 70s and 80s was the continuation of that myth, but for very different reasons. You know, people by then had really started to believe that, you know, Africa was an uh a, a place where people couldn't look, look after themselves, that these were, um, that this was a region where, you know, only pain and suffering existed. Um, and so this idea that Africa needed to be saved and needed to be, um, uh, we, we needed to, to go in there and, 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 and look after them and teach them, uh, you know, essentially how to survive, um, started to, to really gain traction. And it did, um, more than ever in the 80s when these sort of celebrity-backed campaigns um, really took off and they realized that they could make a ton of money in a really short period of time. Um, and 
they could send you know, a, a, a lot of money into a specific region, but without understanding the nuance and the context of what was actually happening, um, they often would do more harm because of the images that they were pushing. Um, you know, everyone, if they close their eyes, they know these sort of images of of children and babies with flies roaming around the heads of malnourished families of, of people of, you know, uh, children running around an empty well and these were the devastating images that really, really uh, spread around the world and 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 made everyone think that you know these are the these are the things that represent Africa at a time when many African countries had gone through those early challenges um, of trying to establish themselves and had gotten through it and they were trying to present themselves as they were to the rest of the world to say now that we've now that we've put that work in come and visit us you know come and uh experience what it's like uh for yourself um and many countries found it hard to get tourism in because you know things like do they know it's christmas were telling the world that you know africa was a place of fear and dread and that there was no running water there and that um the only water that existed came from people's tears um and uh you know outreach which is actual which is a line in the song that's not a, a clever phrase on your own part no that's a literal line that there's there's just you know also there won't be snow in africa this christmas time the greatest gift they'll get this year is life and it's 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 those sort of lyrics that made it incredibly difficult in the book i talk about coney 2012 and i go into detail about uh coney 2012 and the way in which it pushed this vision of uganda as a place where a warlord was roaming the streets stealing children um and forcing them into their into his army um, at a time when local activists and the Ugandan government had done an incredible amount of work to push Joseph Kony out of the country. Um, but that wasn't the 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 vision that Kony 2012 um had had shown the world. And Uganda couldn't compete with the viral video that became the most watched uh clip on YouTube um I think within a week of the film coming out. Um, and you know, ironically, uh, months before Kony 2012 came out, Lonely Planet had um, selected Uganda as uh, one of the top tourist destinations in the world. Um, and then this film comes out and tourism to Uganda, as you can imagine, completely plummets. Um, and interesting, kind of in researching this book, I hadn't realized at the time that Uganda, after the film came out, had done a lot of work trying to push back against the film they released their own videos and they basically created this entire campaign to to try and uh fix the narrative that was being spread around the world but um unfortunately you know it was no match for a sickly a, a sickly produced film and 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 uh, you know tourism kept plummeting for years after that video and so these are some of the 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 dangers of single stories and of this sort of imagery and and stereotyping that only ever tells one story one of the more shocking facts in the book is that something like 90 percent of africa's material cultural legacy is now held off the continent where is it and what if any efforts are underway to return these historical possessions yeah so these artifacts are in uh museums they're in universities they're in private collections all around the world um during the colonial era part of colonizing a region was stealing artifacts um and these artifacts were pillaged from communities all across the continent and they were taken uh to museums often they were taken straight to places where they still reside today 
And one of the, and, you know, more incredible things that I, I learned in researching was just how there is this, this, this idea today that museums push that, oh, you know, this was a completely different time and a different period. And, um, you know, uh, we can't sort of judge today's standards by then, but the standards of then and today are the exact same. Um, when some of the, what are known as the Benin bronzes were taken from West Africa and brought to the United Kingdom, the then prime minister in 1892, I think, um, gave a speech in parliament saying how it was a great national shame that these items had been stolen and that they should be returned. And, um, the explorer who took them said, Oh yeah, no, absolutely. We'll, 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 uh, send them back as soon as possible. Um, and those items are still in London today. Um, and you have this playing out across museums, uh, here in London, um, but also in, in Brussels and in, in France, um, and in the United States. And, uh, there are, you know, currently efforts to have, um, you know, as many of these artifacts returned as possible, but, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of items. Um, and occasionally you kind of hear of, you know, 10 are being returned, 15 are being returned and so on, but it, it's just, it's just not enough. And it, it, it's incredibly slow. And it's hard. again, it goes back to kind of what I was saying that, you know, countries are trying to tell their own stories and they want to encourage things like tourism to their countries. They want to, they want to be able to really present the best of themselves to the rest of the world. And that's hard to do when you don't have these items in your possession to do that. Um, and the particularly frustrating thing is that this doesn't have to be considered some huge conflict between uh, the two countries, you know, um, or the two regions, uh, many of these African countries would be more than happy to, to loan these items back, um, to museums across the world. They just want to have possession of these items in the first place. They want to have some at least to, uh, showcase themselves. Uh, you know, when you have 90% of the material cultural legacy of the continent being held outside of the region, there's almost nothing that you can uh, showcase yourself. Um, and across the, across the world, what you really have is just hoarding of other people's items. The British Museum, um, has about 900 Benin bronzes, 800 of them are in permanent storage. Uh, only a hundred of them are ever on display. And, uh, Nigeria, where these items originated, you know, would be more than happy for the British Museum to keep a hundred of them. You know, they're just saying, if you, if you don't mind returning the 800 that you don't seem to, ever want to do anything with that would be great and so this this kind of goes back to the the the, the challenges of these um of of both colonialism and the myth that was allowed to carry on um and this idea that we've all uh that meant too many people have accepted that africa is a place where um you know there are no individual destinies it's just one singular monolith of, of predetermined destinies um countries find it hard to push back against that when they can't you know, showcase the best that they have, you know, it's this ongoing challenge. And, um, again, you know, that's one area that, that really, really needs to, um, see some change fast. You have family in Nigeria, which according to many estimates will have more people than China by the end of this century. Adipo, do you want to reflect a bit on the significance of becoming the world's second most populous country and what that may mean for Africa's economic and geopolitical standing in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible to see the growth across the region. Um, and especially, uh, considering that, you know, the average age of, of the continent is below 40. Um, 
I think even potentially below 30. Um, and you have this continually um, developing region where things are changing at such an incredible speed in such specific, unique ways. And I think it's such a shame that people don't fully explore what that means for the rest of the world and um, how, you know, so much of uh, the future uh, sort of cultural movements around the world, political movements around the world will likely come from Africa. Um, and yet there is this gross misunderstanding that continues to survive up until today when people think about Africa and what as a continent it has to offer. Um, and then, of course, you know, there, there are challenges of things like climate change and 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 all that that's continuing to impact the region. Um, but I think, you know, when, when you see the growth in the region and you see um, just how much um, each individual African country in such a short period of time has had uh, on the rest of the world and the influence through uh, music and fashion and food, and film and and all these many things. It, it, it's such a shame that that's underappreciated, um, and that people uh, don't have that curiosity for this gigantic region. Um, there is so much there to learn and explore, and I think there's so many great opportunities as we see, you know, within, in that sort of population growth um, into the future. You talk quite a lot in the book about Pan Africanism. You write, for instance, that it offers quote constructive collectivism, building a shared future that also respects and accommodates nuance. In light of the diversity you describe, including you know, something like 1.4 billion people speaking more than 2,000 languages, how will a Pan-African vision take shape? How deep, in other words, does it fit into your broader thesis? Yeah, so I, I end the book, um, the final few pages, talking about um, a sort of a modern version of Pan-Africanism. The, the initial idea around Pan-Africanism was essentially, uh, or the more radical idea post-colonialism that was, you know, pushed by, um, Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, um, was more of sort of a, a united continent, um, based on kind of that shared history of colonialism. Uh, obviously, you know, this is simply just a two, big of a region to make such a thing work um but the the, the sort of the modern version of pan-africanism is more like you know what you see with the european union in europe um which is you have these individual states who have spent the last 60 years um having to look inward and to establish their countries and to establish national identities and traditions and then coming out of that period of time to then build you know better links with other countries um to to kind of harness uh, many of the the shared histories that they've had um, to help their own individual uh, populations. Um, so it's more of a a way of 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 African countries now that they've um, you know done that hard work in those initial stages of of building their modern states um, to then say you know oh, let's look outward um, to see where. Um, we can join forces, um, to harness much of the, uh, much of the talent among young people, especially across the continent. And that work expands into the diaspora as well. Um, the ability to be able to tell your story as a nation helps many, you know, African Americans, especially who have been looking to build better connections with, a region that they've not known enough about because of that's sort of been blocked by um, the stereotyping of of the entire continent um, to start building better links with with the region and um, and specific countries as well. 
Um, so it's it, the, the sort of modern take on Pan-Africanism is is more just trying to get um, the uh, these individual countries uh, to build uh, better relationships with each other, as well as with the diaspora, um, and harnessing the power of that uh, to really have a uh, an impact on um, the sort of cultural, political, scientific world. You anticipated my final question about the role of diaspora. So, so maybe rather than ask that, I'll just ask a more general question. You know, what what depot would you like to leave our our listeners with in terms of understanding the past, present, and future of this complex and diverse continent? Yeah, when it comes to the past of the continent, I think what I want readers to understand is that context matters so much, and the history of how these countries were formed is so vital and so important and that the, the the pain and chaos and violence that was deliberately sown into these countries is so important to understand um uh, one quick example the first country that was essentially created after the berlin conference was the known as the congo free state and it was given to the the king of belgium king leopold ii um, and king leopold quickly realized that running a country was very expensive and so he put the previously free people of Central Africa to work as slaves in this brutal slavery regime that ended up killing half the population, about 10 million people. Um, that's the origin story of the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, a nation that is is today um has found stability and is 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 moving, um, is trying to move forward. And you see these stories across the region, and understanding that gives the context. Um, that is needed to switch the narrative from, oh, these are just a bunch of failed African countries um, with little to offer the world, and um, to one that actually says, well, if that was their inheritance back in the 1960s, and in such a short period of time, in just 60 years, they've managed to turn that story around, then actually the story of Africa is one of success rather than one that we should see with uh, pity um, and one that we should uh, simply just paint with this broad brush of of, of suffering and, and poverty and nothing else. Um, and so I want people to kind of take away that what they've understood about the region is essentially a myth that was deliberately created, um, and to switch that into one around curiosity, to go out there and say, oh, so what if you have this incredibly diverse place of 1.4 billion people and over 2,000 languages? What what What... This place certainly must offer so much. Um, and when you do that, I think that the region will show itself to be one that is incredibly exciting. It's one that is filled with everything and anything from stories of great triumph, of course, to stories of of great suffering and everything that exists in between that, like anywhere else in the world. Um, and I want people to kind of build that personal connection with it and not just see it as this far off place um, of just arid red soil. Um, but a place that is like them as well and and is like their communities and they see, you know, their own family and their own community's tradition, wherever you are in the world, you, you see that, you know, Africa can offer that, offer the same things. And I think when that personal connection is built, um, then you'll start to see a real shift in the world's relationship with Africa. Well, the first step for listeners is to buy the book, Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa, Deepo Falion. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a really great conversation. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.